It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Like Jeremy said, my name is Robert Knuth. Uh, I am the campus minister with RUF. Uh, it's our denominational campus ministry, Reformed University Fellowship, and uh, it's a pleasure to serve the students of the University of Michigan. Um, but without further ado, uh, I'm going to get to our text this morning. Uh, unfortunately, the text in your worship folder is um, not right. I am going to be in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 11, and so I will actually give you some time to flip open your your Bibles, or uh, like maybe most of us, uh, open up your phones, um, and I will start reading here in a second. As you are opening up your Bibles, uh, like Jeremy said, I will be with you here the next three weeks, and so um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a window into um, some of the, the sermons I've been giving students on campus this past semester. We went through a series called God the Questioner. And so the next three weeks, I'm going to be taking a selection of uh, questions that God asked after the fall on Genesis 3, he asked uh, six questions right off the bat. Uh, where are you? Who told you? What is this you have done? Uh, why are you angry? Where is your brother? I guess that's five. There's a sixth one in there somewhere. Um, but this morning we're going to be looking at who told you, which is actually the second question God asked in Genesis 3. This is his holy, inspired, inerrant word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you once again uh, this morning that we get to come into your house and to worship you as one people, as one church body, uh, one baptism, one Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, hearts to behold you, and most importantly, Lord, that you would be here by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through me, uh, help your people to see King Jesus high and lifted up. And that he is crucified for them. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So before I begin, I, I want to give uh, a lot of credit to a guy by the name of Philip Greenslade. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Questions That God Asked. And so I'm going to be borrowing a lot of the content in that book for this sermon today. Uh, and so without further ado... Um, one of the favorite TV shows my students watch is a, is a TV show called uh, Breaking Bad. It's an award-winning TV show. It's on Netflix. And uh, Walter White start, starts off in the pilot episode by making a confession as it looks like he's about to, he's about to get arrested for killing someone. 
He says, this is a quote, to all law enforcement entities, this is not an admission of guilt. I'm speaking to my family now. Skyler, his wife, you are the love of my life. I hope you know that. Walter Jr., you're my big man. There are, there are going to be some things, things that you'll come to learn about me in the next few days. I just want you to know that no matter how it may look, I only had you in my heart. Goodbye. End quote. And so what you need to know if you've never seen the show is that Walter, Walter White is a high school tem- chemistry teacher who learns that he's dying of lung cancer. Uh, his sad news is compounded by the fact that his son, Walter Jr., has cerebral palsy. Uh, his wife, Skyler, is pregnant with their second child. It's all a mess. It's a mess. The, f- the family is barely scraping by financially, so much so that Walter, who's a high school chemistry teacher, has to take a second job at a car wash when he's not teaching. He feels like on his best days, his life is boring, and on his worst days, it's inadequate. And so the news that he doesn't have much time to live uh, eventually causes him to do something drastic, and this is kind of what the whole show is about. He finds a former student of his, Jesse Pinkman, and together, the two of them begin to cook meth. Um, The remaining five seasons show in explicit detail how this side hustle eventually destroys his life, divides his family, and even rips apart his very humanity. And so the question that's planted in your mind as the viewer in episode one is how could this ordinary high school chemistry teacher eventually turn into such a monster? Uh, A meth dealer who... Uh, essentially runs the Southwest Corridor, uh, and it, it's, it's horrific. Season by season, he, he perpetually kind of turns more dark. And you're just wondering, how did he get to this place? And so I think the better question to ask Walter is, who told you that your life is inadequate? Who told you that you need to cook meth in order to provide for your family? Who told you? Because the reality is, Walter believes the lie that he isn't enough. Right? If he had believed he was enough, then he wouldn't have gone through the odds and ends of trying to hide this immense secret from his family. He believes the lie that he isn't enough. He has, amount, he has, he has not amounted to anything in life. And so in a last-ditch effort, he's going to risk everything and try not to be the failure who is about to die and leave his family in financial debt. And so I'm going to go out on a limb this morning. I'm going to suggest that Walter Wright's reality is your greatest nightmare. Walter White's reality that he is a failure is your greatest nightmare. The nightmare that your life is a failure. That you've ended up with a lackluster career, no money, a broken family, and friends who think you're lame. And so in order to avoid this nightmare, you bust your tail at work. At home, you try to send your kids to the right schools, you try to vacation in the right spots. In your private life, you make sure you have the right clothes, the right haircut, you work out enough. You're trying so desperately to avoid being a failure. And so the the default posture of your heart, of my heart, and Walter White's heart, is avoid being a failure at all costs, even if it means eventually becoming a meth dealer. And so if this is remotely true of your experience at all, I want to ask you one question this morning. Like, why? 
might seem like an obvious question, but why? Why are you trying so desperately to avoid failure? Or, or are you scared of? And so I, I think our text this morning would maybe answer, because you believe the lie that you already are a failure. You believe you already are not enough, and that you don't measure up. My Michigan students would call this the imposter syndrome. The Bible calls it shame. This morning we're going to look at the question that God asks us when we believe our nightmares. By asking us, who told you? God displays both skepticism and security. For you note takers, those are our two points this morning. God the skeptic and God our security. God the skeptic and God our security. And so what does it mean for God to be skeptical? Isn't that what people are called who are weary of believing God and his promises in the Bible? God is skeptical in the sense that he doesn't just blindly believe whatever is before him. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11 with me again. The text reads, And he, referring to Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He, referring to God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Adam's essentially saying, look God, I'm wearing this loincloth and I'm covered up in fig leaves because I'm scared. And so without trying to sound like Captain Obvious, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it changed everything, right? But here's what it primarily did. It confused their motivations. Instead of enjoying intimate relationship with God in the garden, sin made Adam fearful. Instead of moving toward his wife and serving her, he, what does he do? He throws her under the bus, right? It was Eve. It's not so much what Adam and Eve do after eating of the fruit. It's why they do it. And so if you're a, maybe a high schooler with me this morning or a kid, uh, it's almost like you know when you're at home on the weekend... And your mom all of a sudden starts asking questions about why you're spending so much time playing video games or watching TV. Uh, It's annoying at first, right? Like, why is mom asking me all these questions? Uh, But if you're in any kind of real relationship with your mom, you begin to think to yourself, why does this bother her so much? It's the weekend. I don't have any schoolwork to do. Why, Why is she asking me these questions now? What's going on? Mom isn't usually like this. Therapists call this process attunement, or the effort you make to really understand what is going on in your mom's inner world. That would make her get so angry at you playing video games on a free day. There's something off. Okay, so why am I bringing in like therapists and, and this word attunement? Why does this matter? It matters because this is exactly what is going on in the dialogue between God and Adam. God isn't concerned so much that Adam is scared. That seems to be an obvious reality just by looking at him. God knows Adam is scared. When God responds to Adam's fear by saying, Who told you? It is God attuning to Adam's heart. It is God making an effort to know what is going on in the inner world of Adam that would cause him to be afraid. What's going on in the inner world of Adam that would cause him to be off? This isn't how I created Adam. Why is he acting so differently? 
you have a best friend who knows everything about you, it's God doing what your best friend does so well. He's drawing Adam out. He desires to know Adam. And maybe most importantly in knowing Adam, he wants to help Adam see the lie that he has believed about who he is as a human being. His identity, as we say in 21st century America. He wants to help Adam see the lie that he has believed about his identity. He wants Adam to see what he believes fundamentally isn't true to reality. He wants Adam to see that he's living in a fantasy land. I have a friend uh, who's in my fraternity in college. Uh, He never drank a drop of alcohol, even after he turned 21. Uh, And that is until the last week, right before graduation. Uh, During this week, this friend of mine proceeded to, night after night, uh, drink so much that he would black out. Uh, And my fraternity brothers loved it. Finally, finally, this guy is like us, right? Um, But I couldn't get over how weird this was. After cornering him finally at one of our parties, uh, he finally shared with me that his very identity was in question. He no longer believed who he was anymore. He no no longer knew who he was. Uh, And just as a side note, this is why, in my opinion, campus ministry is just so vital and why I'm so thankful Christ Church plays an active role in loving college students. Because when college students show up their freshman year, whether they are an atheist, a Christian, from Michigan, from California, from Georgia, wherever, all of them are asking the same question, which is, who am I? Who am I? What is true? What is true about who I am? About who God is? About the world I live in? And here was my buddy, right as he was about to graduate college, all of a sudden thrown for an entire loop and no longer knowing who he was and what was true. And to be honest with y'all, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. But what I wish I had done was ask better questions, seek to draw out his heart, not assume so much that I knew what he was going through. So I share that story with y'all because I, I want to give you a category of what lie do you believe this morning? What lie about yourself do you believe? Is is it do the right thing, go to church, provide for your family, find the right hobbies, and you'll be okay? What happens when you believe this lie long enough and you're still not okay? You still feel like you're not doing enough. You're a Christian and you read your Bible every morning and you still feel like, I need to read it longer. I don't feel close enough to God. That's a good thing. Read your Bible. (laughs) But it's this feeling like I am perpetually not doing enough. I am perpetually not enough. You feel like if you just make more money, get the right friends, then somehow you're going to ultimately be okay. Find the right church. And so I I mean this really genuinely. People of God, friends, brothers and sisters. How is that working out for you? If you're like me, it's not going so well. And what if the the God of the Bible desires so much to know you and to attune to your heart that he is asking you this morning, who told you that you're inherently not okay? Who told you that you need to climb the ladder in your career to do well in life? Who told you that it's your body and you can do with it whatever you want? Who told you that no one has the right to tell you what to do? Who told you those things? 
Who told you to get a vaccine or not get a vaccine? Ooh, touched on a, a nerve right there. Right, but my point is, who told you? In other words, what if the God of the Bible is inviting you to grow skeptical of your presuppositions? To grow skeptical of your motivations? To grow skeptical that your experience in this world is really what is ultimately true? To grow skeptical that what you think and what you know about Christianity is really Christianity? The author Philip Greenslade, I mentioned him at the start, he recalls a story of the much-admired Roman Catholic writer uh, Flannery O'Connor. She was a southern um, uh, author who lived, I guess, maybe 50 to 70 years ago. He says about her, uh, and this is a quote, She once wrote to a student friend facing intellectual challenges to his faith. She advised him not to passively soak up the received secular wisdom of his university teachers. She commended a particular author to him as able to provide not answers, but different questions. What kept me a skeptic in college, she wrote, was precisely my Christian faith. It always said, wait, don't bite on this, get a wider picture, continue to read. In other words, ask yourself the question constantly, who told me this? Why is everybody else believing this to be true? Who, who told them that? Who's telling me this to be true? Because our text is clear this morning that someone or something told you what to believe. And maybe this is a hot take, but there is no original thought. Someone or something told you what is true. Who is it for you? What is it for you? Is it your Instagram feed? Is it the New York Times, Fox News? And so this leads me to my second point for this morning, which is God, our security. And here's where we need to talk about the difference between God being skeptical and God being inherently a skeptic. Don't miss this. The skepticism of who told you, it's a question of origin. And it presupposes that there is a knowable origin. The skepticism of secular progressivism, the skepticism that you see in Ann Arbor as you walk around, uh, is a question of destination, and it presupposes no known origin. Y'all tracking with that? I'm I'm just going to repeat that one more time. Skepticism of who told you is a question of origin. It's a question of beginnings. And it presupposes that there actually is an origin, and you can know it. The skepticism of our world of, of secular progressivism is a question of destination. Where are we going? But it it presupposes that there is no knowable origin. You can't know where we came from, but we we can know where we're going, or we can get excited about where we're going. And so by way of example, it's the difference between asking questions about the foundation of your home. You live there, you set up shop there, but I'm going to ask questions about what's actually holding this up. Versus being homeless and wondering where your next meal is coming from. So by simply asking the question, who told you? God wants to inspect your house's foundation. He wants to know who spoke this lie that you have believed about yourself. I just, I I believe I'm, I'm too much in conversation. I show up and I talk too much. Well, who told you that? Let's look at 
whether or not that's really true. God wants to investigate what you believe just fundamentally is true about you. I want to be even so bold as to say in this question that we get a glimpse of the justice of God and his desire to make whoever is responsible for telling these lies about you pay the grave penalty of leading his beloved creatures astray. But that's getting ahead of myself. The who told you question is a question meant to reveal who has the authority in your life. Who is king or queen of your life? Who has the final say? Whose voice rings the loudest? Who gets the ultimate say over not just what you do in life, but how you do it? And so just to clarify the goal, the hope, the agenda, you could say, of this question, is meant for you and me to see what comes naturally to us, that we actually might know ourselves. Um, What we're most prone to believe, more times than not, is actually the opposite of what is actually true. The sad story of the Old Testament uh, is of a people cast into exile for refusing to listen to the voice of God or pay attention to his prophets. They refuse to do so because they have chosen to instead listen to the voice of another. One who has deceived them of what is true. In Jeremiah 7 verse 28, the prophet, the weeping prophet Jeremiah writes, Israel's epitaph as they were sent away into exile, into Babylon. This is what he writes on their epitaph. He says, quote, Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. God's people were deceived into turning uh, away. Away from him. And they are no different than we are. I think sometimes in our modern day culture, there's, there's an arrogance of the modern. You know, we're so high tech and savvy with our iPhones and technology. That we look back on the ancients and we think, oh man, what silly people. They didn't know anything. But, but that's exactly what is true about us. Paul in Romans one twenty five summarized our innate sinful predicament as believing a lie. So what it means to be a sinner is that you believe a lie. Made for the truth, to believe the truth, to live in the truth. We suppress what is true and ex- exchange it for a lie. Sin is like a bad food processor that takes in truth, twists and churns it around, and then spits out a lie. God's voice that speaks truth says, You are made in my image. I delegate my kingdom rule to you. I want you to be my partner in ordering the world. I have blessed you with individuality, with unique gifts and skills and creativity, so that you can bless others. I give you the honor of bearing my image where you go. You have the dignity of being my son, my daughter. I love you unconditionally. So that is truth. The craftiness of sin and the schemes of the devil would have you believe... You are worthless. Your life is pointless. I don't want you for anything. There isn't anything special about you. Others just get in the way. Nobody loves you. You'll always be alone. No matter how hard you try, you'll always be a failure. I don't consider myself to be a mind reader, uh, but I think if I could be in any one of your brains right now, I would imagine that the second narrative rings a lot more true than the first. 
you have been deceived into believing a lie. This is true if you're a Christian or not this morning. Your sin makes it so that you can't ultimately know what is true about you. The devil, yes, there is a real devil, plays off the shame that you carry around day in and day out. He plays off of it, and it's a live torture that has you beat up, exhausted, and insecure. And so by asking the question, who told you? God is probing your confusion. He wants to know what's going on in your inner world. He's inviting you to consider that maybe the second narrative ultimately isn't what is true. He is seeking to gain a hearing with you to present his case of reality. What is his case? Well, it's not an eloquent argument. It's not a fancy idea. Isn't this so much the critique of Christianity? It's not an argument. It's not a fancy idea. It's not even a socially distant Zoom call. The God of the Bible enters and lives in the confusion of the world to eventually put himself upon a Roman torture device to make clear the reality of who he is, who you are, and how the world works. The person of Jesus Christ as God's incarnate word is truth. His words are words of eternal life. He creates a climate of reliable rea- <laughs> He creates a climate of re- reliable reality where we can be liberated from confusion, lies and propaganda and above all else self-deception. By hearing and holding to the truth as he tells it, we are set free to be lovingly truthful friends, family, neighbors, church members. We are set free. One of my favorite quotes is that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who are struggling to be free, and then there are those who are free to struggle. Which are you this morning? At Christ Church, we experience the truth as it is in Jesus. In corporate worship, this is why this is so important to worship with God's people this morning, is that we actually experience His grace through the ordinary preaching of His Word, and as we eat it and sing it and confess it. But this is also true as we experience it with one another in community. That's why it's so vital that we be in community with each other. That we be doing life with each other. On the cross, Jesus broadcast the decisive message, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Greenslade pontificates, he says, quote, How can any of us fully anticipate the costly consequences of godless ideas? Whose idea was it to crucify Jesus? Did any of them know, really know what they were doing? Did Caiaphas, Pilate, the soldiers know? Does any of us know what finally comes from following an alien voice? They did not know the scale, enormity, and significance of what they were doing that day. End quote. Ideas have faithful consequences, do they not? I was just uh, at West Side Bookshop the other night. And uh, there's a quote there on the wall about how a bookshop is an arsenal of nuclear weapons ready to be disposed to the masses. Because what do books hold? What do books possess? They possess ideas. And so whether or not it's the idea that spread through Nazi Germany that there is, a, there is such a thing as a life worthy not to be lived, 
Or the simple idea that you and me believe every day that we're inadequate, that we don't measure up. These are the same godless ideas, the same blatant lies, the same virtual fantasy lands that also led to the crucifixion of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know what we are doing when we believe these lies. Our deception traps us in a never-ending cycle of self-torment. In the case of Nazi Germany, mass extinction. That's why in order to be freed from such an existence, it would take a paradox. It would take something that doesn't make sense to you naturally. It would take something that would pierce your confusion. It would take the cross. The cross reveals the glory of a God who in Jesus Christ achieves his greatest triumph over sin, evil, and death through humiliation, vulnerability, and death. Not necessarily the triumphant things that we want. Right? Uh, The famous hymn, Come and Mourn with Me a While, says that, quote, Victory remains with love, for he, our Lord is crucified. The cross tells us of a God, of God's settled determination to subvert all human wisdom and to save the world by the foolishness of a crucified Messiah and to overturn the love of power with the power of love. Think of Huey Lewis in the news. Power of love. At the cross we hear, Father, forgive them, for they really were deceived about what they were doing can't think of a greater picture to the deceptiveness of sin than when Walter White says that when he was making meth can you imagine when he was making methamphetamine he only had his family in his heart as he was going off and destroying the very family that he was trying to save as he was tearing apart the reputation that he wasn't enough he was trying to save it to be transformed the entire time he was convinced He was convinced that it was the right thing. That it was true. Who told you that you were inadequate? The blood of Jesus Christ makes you forever adequate, people of God. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. Jerry Bridges once said that the grace of the Lord Jesus is, uh, you, you can never be so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, but you're you're never so good that you're somehow beyond the need of God's grace. The blood of Jesus Christ is forever adequate for you. He cannot love you more, and he can never love you any less than what we see on the cross of Calvary. So let's pray, let's repent, let's go to him. King Jesus, we we do come to you, and we, we confess our unworthiness. The fact that we have not lived as we are called this week. We're hypocrites. We confess one thing with our mouths, but we do one thing, uh, uh, the complete opposite thing with our bodies and with our thoughts. And we need your grace. We need your grace. Uh, Help us to turn. Help us to repent from these things that are destroying us so that we might find life in your name, that we might absorb more of the foolishness of the cross and live in the way of Jesus than to believe the lies of this world, to believe the lies of our own heart, 
to believe the lies of our unworthiness because the cross, you forever state and proclaim to us that we are worthy because of what you have done and nothing that we bring. Thank you that that is forever true. It's in your name we pray. Amen.